Welcome to the Alcohol Tipping Point Podcast. I'm your host, Deb Maisner. I'm a registered nurse, health coach, and alcohol-free badass. I have found that there's more than one way to address drinking. If you've ever asked yourself if drinking is taking more than it's giving, or if you've found that you're drinking more than usual, you may have reached your own alcohol tipping point. The Alcohol Tipping Point is a podcast for you to find tips, tools, and thoughts to change your drinking. Whether you're ready to quit forever or a week, this is the place for you. You are not stuck and you can change. Let's get started. Welcome back to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point podcast. I am honored to have on the show today, Jessica Duenas. Jessica is the founder of Bottomless to Sober. She's also the 2019 Kentucky State Teacher of the Year. So she shares her story of being an educator, a teacher who was hiding her secret of drinking and her struggles. And now she is a life coach. She's the founder of Bottomless to Sober. She has a podcast out. She helps other people change their drinking. And she has a special focus on helping educators and teachers who have so much writing on them and and so much pressure just to be perfect in the public eye. So I really appreciate Jessica coming on here and sharing her story. I think you're going to find it really helpful. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the show, Jessica. I am delighted to have you on. I have teachers in my life. My niece just graduated from Boise State University. She's now a high school math teacher. So, and then I have teenage daughters and I work for a wellness department at our local hospital. I'm a nurse and a health coach. And one of our contracts is with our Boise school district, our school district. So I have worked with a lot of teachers and I just think it's a special population and a population of people that maybe struggle and have to keep it hidden a little bit differently than, you know, say a business owner or a writer or, you know, another kind of profession. And so I am so glad you're here to share your story, your experience, and just welcome to the show. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Deb. You're you're absolutely right. Teaching is one of those professions where I mean, A, we as educators hold ourselves to a standard, but I think it's also because society holds us to the standard where we are teachers first and humans later. And because of that, I feel like we don't give ourselves the grace to be imperfect people, right? And all people are imperfect, but because of the stigma that is attached to problems with drinking alcohol, right? It becomes very, very easy for a teacher or at least for me as a teacher, to completely shut down and have kept that hidden for so many years. Yeah, yeah. Well, can you just share a little bit about who you are and and what you do now before we get into your story? For sure. So hi, everyone who's listening. So I'm Jessica Duenas, and I was the Kentucky State Teacher of the Year in 2019 while struggling Um, with a very heavy and strong addiction to alcohol. I was drinking up to a fifth a day of alcohol my last year of drinking. I had developed alcoholic liver disease. And um, thankfully that has 
that has healed because I stopped drinking in November of 2020. But for the length of my career that I struggled with my drinking, I kept it a secret. Nobody knew. And I really leaned on being a really good educator and just showing up professionally and checking off all the exterior boxes to make sure that nobody would ever question that there was something deeper going on with me. So really for me, I didn't finally stop drinking until I finally started talking about my story, which was right after my sobriety date. And that really has helped me um, break free from the stigma. I feel like the stigma was keeping me silent. The silence was killing me. And since I started sharing my story, I also, I took a break from education. I got certified as a life coach. So I do work as a life coach for people who are changing their relationships with alcohol. And I recently did go also back into education, but this time higher education. So I'm also in a space where I speak openly about my recovery and I run um, a recovery community support group on the campus that I work at as well. So I've had the opportunity to kind of like rewrite my narrative because for so many years, I felt like I had, if I was going to be an educator, I had to be a silent educator. And that that's not healthy, that's not sustainable. And I'm kind of like rewriting that whole narrative at this point. Well, I, I would love to hear about your story, how you ended up being Kentucky Teacher of the Year while you were like at the height of hiding your struggles. Wow. Yeah, so that basically came from, from childhood. I learned very quickly early on to do well in school. I'm a first-generation American. My mom is from Costa Rica. My father's from Cuba. And th- my parents had really adopted just your classic Western beauty standards, which many of our parents do, whether or not you're like from the U.S. or not. But, you know, for my parents, they were doing the best that they could with what they had. But for them, it was very important that I was a certain body size. And I was, a, I'm, I'm five foot nine. I'm big and solidly built. And I was like that since I was little. So there was a lot of fat shaming that I grew up with. And what I very quickly learned in school was that my size didn't matter to my teachers as long as I did well in school. And I also noticed very quickly that my parents, they would let me breathe about my food intake if I brought in good grades, right? If I got that praise from them. So I rapidly latched onto education and I latched onto being the best at something to kind of like make up for the fact that I had really bad self-esteem about my appearance and my body, right? And so as I grew into a young woman, my my excellence in school just transferred to my excellence as an employee and as a professional. And so once I got to college and I got exposed to alcohol, I started drinking more. I started drinking more problematically, but nobody would notice because of course in college, the binge drinking blends in with everyone else's binge drinking. And then as an educator, you know, teachers drink a lot. So when we would all go to happy hour, when I first started teaching in Brooklyn, you know, I taught in Brooklyn and that same, you know, across the street from the school were like hip, cute bars and things like that. So we drank a lot and my relationship with alcohol, you know, it's always like this weird gray scale. Like you never know exactly when it's a problem, but one of the signs, one of my red flags I'll always remember was at a happy hour, a coworker was like, whoa, Jess, aren't you drinking too fast? Cause I probably had like three drinks in like maybe an hour or so. And I remember that shame at the moment that that colleague called me out. It took me right back to being a kid when like my mom would get on me for like getting a second serving of food. And, you know, as a kid, I would hide my food. I would steal food, all sorts of things like that. And as an adult, like that was the beginning of me starting to mimic those behaviors going from food to alcohol. And so after that, I was like, well, no one's ever going to catch me drinking too much. So I always made sure to match what other people were doing when I was in social situations involving alcohol. 
And then I always would like stop by a store on my way home to kind of finish myself off in a way that I would have preferred. And so as the years went on, you know, your tolerance builds. I mean, it's basic neuroscience. Your brain builds a habit. My habit was getting stronger and stronger. So it would take more and more alcohol for me to feel the effects that I was desiring to feel. So by the time my alcohol consumption was like wildly high, I knew I had a problem. I wasn't ready to seek help. I wasn't ready to stop. And so what I did do was I dove into my career even more to make up for the fact that I felt like I was less than, you know, again, the stigma in my family and our family's culture, you know, people who drank too much were called vagos, lazy, borrachos, drunks, right? Like all this really strong charged language made me feel terrified to connect and identify as having a problem. So I like, I'm going to do everything to show that I'm not lazy, that I'm not a drunk, that I'm not all these things. But at the end of the day, I was absolutely struggling with the addiction. So when I won teacher of the year, at that point, my alcohol consumption had gotten to the point where it was a fifth of day. And, you know, and I had recently, I had divorced like the year before. So, you know, there are so many complex issues going on where I felt like I had to prove myself, right? Because of a failed marriage. I felt like, well, after this, I have to have this great comeback. So my career did this amazing comeback. And it felt really rewarding because it felt really good to take care of other people's kids who struggled so much to learn. These were special education students. So I really felt like I was making up for this internalized deficit that I had made in my mind because I drank. So, yeah, I mean, I did an excellent job as a teacher and I drank a whole lot. I People always ask, did you ever go to school drunk? No, I was always really, really hungover, though. Basically, my alcohol consumption would start like at 3 p.m., probably by seven or eight o'clock, I was like passed out, blacked out. I'd sleep for a couple hours, probably at about two or three in the morning. I'd finally like come to. And that at those hours of the night, that is when I would start digging into my lesson plans, my grades and things like that. So essentially I was, my career was my escape. It was like, I was escaping with alcohol from like the after work hours. And then during work hours, I would just dive into that classroom and give it my all. So I could forget about the fact that I felt, you know, I, that I was down because I had gotten divorced that, you know, I didn't have kids, you know, like I was just holding every societal expectation to heart and feeling like a failure because I wasn't meeting that whole list of all these expectations we have on ourselves. Wow. I, I want to go back to, so growing up and being, did your parents grow up in Costa Rica and Cuba or? They did. Yes. So my father, they both were adults when they had come to the U S and they, they met in Brooklyn. They both worked at like the same store. So that's how they met. But yeah, they had each come as fully grown adults to the United States. Oh, wow. And so you were mentioning like they were adopting like American beauty ideals and standards. And so put that upon you, like you needed to look a specific way. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that had a lot to do, in my opinion. It's it's like if you go if you go to Latin America and you watch the news anchors right? And you watch like the telenovelas and things like that. The people who are portrayed are often not what the people look like. So typically they're, they're wider looking. They have like the long straight hair, they're thin, etc. My father was an Afro-Cuban and my mom, I mean, she's Costa Rican of probably a mixture of probably like European indigenous descent. 
but you know, like out of my sister and I, I came out with the darker skin. I came out with the curlier hair. I came out like with a larger frame. And so I feel like my parents were constantly trying to mold my appearance so that I could look, so I could look like a whiter, lighter Latina, right? And so, you know, like I had my hair chemically straightened when I was like eight years old, you know, all sorts of like things that I didn't understand what was going on at the time, but you know, all of these constant attempts at changing my appearance, the messaging to me without realizing was there's something wrong with how you look, right? Like we have to straighten your hair. You know, the doctor telling me, putting me on like a diet at like, I don't even know what ridiculously young age, but you know, like there were just so many, so many ways in which I basically internalized the idea that there's something wrong with me and I didn't understand it. So as I got older, I mean, it's been a lot of work that I've had to do now because I feel like you quit drinking and that's when the work actually starts, right? And it's like, and I've had to really evaluate so many things that I thought that I wanted because I had to stop. Once I stopped drinking, I had to, you know, really dive into the clarity of mind of, wait, do I really want this? Or is this something that I've just been told that I should have, right? Like things like that have been very interesting since the recovery journey. But yes, when I was a kid, and, you know, I saw it in my cousin's homes. I saw it a lot in, like, culturally speaking, there's there's a certain look that is ideal and that it's not me, right? And so that was always kind of like a challenge that my parents were dealing with in terms of trying to adjust my appearance constantly. Yeah. Yeah, that must have been hard. And then you mentioned in the Latin American culture that, People who struggle with drinking are looked upon as, I think you said, lazy, and you had some other terms for it. Can you just speak a little bit about that yeah. culture and how they handle drinking problems? And Yeah. I mean, you know, like the first thing that I'll point out is that the way that in the U.S. we have saved tons of treatment facilities, right? You don't really see that in Latin America, right? And so that's like the first thing that I'll point out. But then secondly, yeah, it's almost like become a moral standing. So Costa Rica is legally, like it's officially a Catholic country, right? And so when you're talking about, say, the church dictating what is right or wrong, it can become very simple to just say, well, if you have a problem with alcohol, you're like a sinner. And it, it's that simple, right? But it it permeates everyone's mindset. So even people who maybe like a younger generation, they're not necessarily religious, but like that's already been transferred generation to generation, like that belief that, okay, well, if someone drinks too much, there's something wrong with them rather than examining what is wrong with the substance that they're drinking, right? And I think like that, that's the cultural thing that happens, say in Costa Rica, Cuba, my family in Cuba, I've had more distance from them because it's so complex and hard to go to Cuba. So when I speak about, say, my childhood experiences, I spent a lot of my childhood in Costa Rica um, when my grandmother was alive. Um, but that's what I would see, you know, and now that I reflect on it, that's essentially what I just see. It's just a very oversimplification of what happens when alcohol hits a person's body. And it's, if the person gets addicted, there's something wrong with the person, not that there's something wrong with the alcohol. And I just think, and I know that that conversation happens enough here in the United States, too, I know now there's been more of a change and I feel like the sober curious movement has definitely put a lot of data, a lot of facts out there in terms of how harmful alcohol can be. But I'll be honest, that is not a conversation of any kind that is happening like in Costa Rica. You know, like at this point, the family members of mine who have started to maybe quit drinking themselves, 
it's been more because their partners have threatened to leave them than because they're like worried about their health, right? Again, the conversation about health isn't really happening. It's more like, if you don't get it together, I'm leaving you. And again, in a country that does not like divorce, in a country that's a Catholic country, let's try to keep these family units together. So, okay, let's stop drinking. But again, there's no, there isn't that conversation about what the alcohol is and how addictive it is. And it reminds me of, I remember my mind being blown when it's funny, I, I read a ton of books. I'm not really a quit lit reader, but I did read Quit Like a Woman um, by Holly Whitaker. And she actually talks about Latin America and how a lot of big alcohol companies send tons of alcohol to Latin America. And what's what's great about it for them, right, is that if you become addicted to alcohol in Latin America, it's really hard to find a place to go to detox. So technically, it's safer to continue drinking at that point than to abruptly stop drinking and risk death by detox, right, from withdrawals. So it, it's really, it's complicated, which it always is. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, you know, but it, it is, it's very interesting to see, to see it in Costa Rica when I go back. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I think I've heard, you know, some of the more religious cultures too, is if you want help, you, it's something you pray about, or you get help from God. You don't seek help outside of the family or the church. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, that I've definitely heard. Right. And I think we hear that whether it's addiction, whether it's mental health issues, right. Any problem that you're supposed to pray about it. And I have absolutely no problem with the power of prayer, right? There is a lot of energy that can go into that and that can really help motivate a person. But I also am a firm believer in action, right? And I also believe, you know, if you if you just say words, but then there's no action happening to follow up with those words, nothing is going to happen. So if you are praying for help, right, then let's find the facility where this help can actually become like made manifest. And I think that that's the tricky part, because if I am drinking a fifth of alcohol a day and I'm just sitting here and praying, but my body is physically dependent on this fifth of alcohol. And if I abruptly stop, I'm going to go into seizures and potentially die. It's going to need a little bit more than just a prayer to adjust. Right. Like, obviously, the prayer is so important because I do feel that recovery is a holistic space. Right. Like you have to take care of your mind. You have to take care of your body. You have to take care of your soul. But you, it has to be everything. It can't be just one aspect that's going to take care of everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you hit your rock bottom. And can you describe that and then how you got out of it? Yeah, so it's interesting. I would say I hit two bottoms. So my first bottom came in September of 2019. And then I, I hit a lower bottom in the spring of 2020. So September 2019, like I mentioned, I had the alcoholic liver disease diagnosis. I had not stopped drinking, but then in September of that year, what started happening was I started to, my symptoms of alcohol use disorder escalated to now also panic and like, like this anxiety that was like crippling to the point where I could not get into my vehicle and drive to school. So it was like, whoa, now you're threatening my job, like alcohol, hold on. Like now I need to like actually get help because I was, you know, divorced for about a year. I was my primary caretaker, so I couldn't risk losing my job. So that was the first time I went into treatment, September of 2019. I told everybody I had the flu and I secretly went into treatment and detox safely. At that point, I was able to, I maintained some sobriety for a few months. 
I, I fell again and had a rough stumble during the holiday season of that year. So the holidays of 2019 into 2020, I also spent them in a treatment facility. And then I, I felt that I had been steady, right? 2020 starts, I'm feeling good. And one big, I'm not going to say it's a mistake. It's what I, it's a learning experience that I had. And I hope if you're listening that you take this as a huge learning experience, if you're thinking about dating and early recovery, because what I started doing after that treatment facility visit and stay of the holiday season was that I started dating a fellow patient who was in treatment with me in 2020, that, that winter season. And of course I went against everybody's guidance. You know, I had, at that time I was attending AA and my sponsor was like, you shouldn't do that, bad idea. His sponsor told him the same thing. We didn't care. We didn't listen to them. And then the pandemic hit. So when the pandemic hit, um, again, for people who were attending only 12-step programs and like church basements and stuff like that, and we were in Kentucky at the time, Kentucky took the pandemic very seriously and shut everything down. So we had nowhere to go. We had no physical locations to have meetings. And at that time, you know, there were communities that were starting to pop up online, but I wasn't aware of them, honestly. So like the luckiest club I know started in that around this time period, no idea that it existed. Now I run meetings there, right? So after we had no support for probably about a month, we were ticking time bombs for disaster to happen and tragedy, honestly. And so this is a content warning for any listener because I am going to talk about death. And so if you need to, you know, jump off the podcast, you know, please take care of yourself. But I'm going to go ahead and continue. So his drug of choice were opiates and he had a relapse. And unfortunately, he passed away from his relapse. He ha- there was fentanyl mixed in his drugs that he had purchased. Mm-hmm. So he tragically t- died on April 28th of 2020. And to kind of, I obviously like anyone listening, like if you are in love or have ever been in love, the idea of that person you're in love with suddenly dying, I'm sure anyone can resonate with how heartbreaking that is for sure. For me, it was also really hard because again, there were certain things that I thought I was having a chance at, right? Like I had gotten divorced and I was like, we're going to get married. I don't have kids. And with him, we had started having the conversations about having kids, right? Like all the things that I thought that maybe I had lost, I started to see them again in him. And just like that, he vanished. And that broke me. Also, because I was in early recovery dating when I really had no business doing that. So as soon I was there, I was the one who found him. And the police came, and then the coroner came, then his mom came. And when the coroner took his body out of his apartment building, the very first thing I did was go straight to the liquor store. And from that point, it was eight months of me in and out of hospital settings, all kinds, right? Like three-day stays, ICU, wrecked car, 35-day treatment, you know, residential treatment facilities. It was a total of about eight hospitalizations from no, from April 28th of 2020 until my sobriety date, which was November 28th of 2020. So I would say that my final bottom was just like an eight-month period of I didn't know if I was going to make it out alive. And really what turned things around by November of 2020 by my sobriety date was this incredibly powerful level of exhaustion. I was really tired. 
at that point, you know, I was missing work left and right. I had like used up all my sick time. I had to use, I was a teacher, right? So I had to use like family medical leave when I would go into the hospitals and things like that. You know, summertime came, so that gave me a break and I was in the hospital and it didn't matter. But I was really, really tired of like tapping into all my resources to try to stay afloat because I was trying to do everything I could to keep my job and do this work as an educator and I was trying to like quit drinking, but not tell anybody. And I was trying to like manage it, but not tell anybody and just keep this as like Ms. Duenas a secret. Like, oh, Ms. Duenas is absent again. What's wrong with her? Oh, she's just having a bad day. I was so sick of that bullshit that I finally decided to quit teaching. And I was like, if I don't, if I don't switch up everything, I'm going to die. And I was like, and clearly I'm not dying because I keep ending up in these ERs and these emergency rooms and then I'm okay. And I was like, so I can't keep living in this cycle. This is exhausting and I'm done. And so I resigned. I put in my, I wrote my resignation letter while in rehab. <laughs> and as soon as I got out, I called my principal and I was like, hey, Mr. Gunn, I'm going to have to resign. And so I put in like my three weeks notice. I also, while in treatment was like, finally consented to talk to a psychiatrist about getting put on medications. You know, again, I had resisted everything, resisted all the help. And I was under this narrative that like you, you know, I believed at that time that the only pathway was just like a direct 12 step pathway with no, no outside support. So I had been like resistant to medications and I was like, you know what, give me the pills. So within a few weeks, the pills started helping. So I had tried to drink and it didn't do anything for me. And I was like, oh, maybe this is some of that change that starts to happen when you take some of these medications. Again, I'm not saying the names of medications. It's your responsibility as a listener to consult with a medical professional. But what I took really did help me. And at that point, then I was like, I need to cement this. It was like the a little glimmer of hope lit up in me. When I realized that the medication was doing what it was supposed to do, I was like, holy shit, maybe I can actually do the sober thing. Maybe I can actually stop drinking. And I was like, I need, I need to I, like get this off my chest. I need to free myself. I need to break the chains of this addiction. So I wrote my story. My sobriety date is November 28th of 2020. And by December 3rd of 2020, I had submitted an op-ed article to the Louisville Courier Journal where I put it all out there. And it, it you know, it's like the title of it is like Kentucky Teacher of the Year, Share Story of Addiction and Recovery. And I put it out there, everything, like everything. And then my resignation date was that December 4th. So the article came out on the 3rd. My last day of work as a teacher was December 4th. And I, I haven't drank since then. And it has been the most liberating thing ever. And I mean, that article went so viral that I've ended up on like Red Table Talk with Jada Pinkett Smith. NPR, CBS Evening News, like it's almost like you name the news network, I've had the opportunity to share my story because it is so unique. You know, like it's not every day that a teacher openly says everything, but I, I stopped caring. I stopped caring about what they would think. It's not true. I cared, but I cared more about the freedom that was on the other side of whatever possible hate that I could have gotten. So even though I was scared of being judged and I was scared of having everyone turn their back on me, because again, I thought that because of the stigma, everybody would like judge me. I knew that this was worth more than that. So I'm so glad that I leaned in on that. And I just, it felt like I jumped off a cliff and I had no idea where I was going to land. And I landed exactly where I needed to.
Wow. Yeah. And I mean, it's clear that this is so important for you to share your story as a teacher, as as a Latina, as, you know, just a person in recovery, like the more we can share, like the more we're going to help people. And so congratulations. We're recording at the end of September. So you're almost to your three year sober anniversary. What was the response when you came out with that article that went viral? It was, there's so much love and warmth. Like, seriously, I was, I was amazed at how many people I connected with from all over, like all over, just the emails that poured into my inbox were like overwhelming. Like, I remember I was like responding to emails for days because people were writing such beautiful messages. People who had never known me had written such beautiful messages. The only negative response I had gotten was from a family member who I decided that, oh, the beauty of sobriety is I learned that I don't have to keep people in my life who I don't want to. So they're not in my life anymore. And that's okay. I needed that. I They had always been a problematic family member for me, but I had never given myself the freedom to cut them off because I thought that I had to keep them in my life. The freedom of sobriety was learning that, oh, I don't have to prioritize people who hurt me. And so that, them acting out when I published my story was like that permission to just say goodbye. And so that was actually really liberating. But aside aside from that problematic family member, the response has been beautiful. And I think I'm glad that you share that because a lot of people are scared to share their stories and and they worry about like, what is the public going to say? What, you know, what's my friend going to say? What's the people I work with? What are they going to say? And it, it seems like overwhelmingly the result is is supportive and positive and like you said, and freeing for you. Like that secret you were holding on to. So for those, those whole like eight months, did you have to, you didn't have to tell or disclose anything to the school or the administrators or like that was all a secret. Is that right? Mostly. So my administrator, he knew what was going on. Like, so pockets of people knew, but you know, they legally have to keep things a secret. So, you know, HR, human resources knew that I was in treatment facilities because we had to send in the the doctor's note that like Jessica's getting locked away for a couple of weeks. Here it is. So HR knew. And, you know, the principal of a school knows what's happening through HR because they're the principal of the school. But no, like the student population, the parents, the other teachers that I was working with, they didn't know. Right. So the boss had to know. And then HR knew. I don't even know if my boss had to know, but I had a very good principal. So I, I told him what was going on so that he knew why the hell I was disappearing for like, you know, weeks at a time. But yeah, like the people, the people who really needed to know just, just didn't. And, you know, for years, my family didn't know, like my family didn't know that I was struggling like this until that winter holiday because I completely blew up the holidays for everybody. But before that, because I lived in Kentucky and my family was either outside of the country or in Florida or in New York, they had no idea how bad it was because when I would talk to them every day to check in, I would call them on my way home from work and then hang up and then start drinking. Right. So I always knew how to like play my cards right. So I never was getting caught. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, what do you think we could do to better support teachers and some of these other professions? I mean, I know nursing is the same way or healthcare where it's like you can't it's it's hard to come out as someone who needs help. You know, how can we be more supportive? Yeah. I mean, I think a big part is creating spaces for people to share their stories. So like one thing that I do, like if any of your listeners are educators, I run a support group every like two months through my site, bottomless2sober.com. And like, I always tell folks, you can come have your camera off. You can use an alias when you do Zoom, but like you can come and talk about like how being an educator is affecting you, right? So that's one first step. I think creating spaces where different helping professionals are able to show up, recognize that they're helping professionals and recognize how their work can impact their substance use issues, right? I think the other thing too, which is also, it's very idealist and it's very like revolutionary. It's like, damn, like let's transform the actual professions. But that requires like a major overhaul, say of like government budgets and, you know, like legal statutes and all that. that that's, that's beyond our scope of our control in terms of like we, what we can do today. So it's like, I don't have the conversations about like how we can fix education and the teaching profession and make it more manageable because that's not happening today and people are dying today. So in terms of like what we can do today, I think like that's the first thing it's the spaces. I think the other thing too is for teachers and educators and other helping professions to be aware of the different pathways to recovery. I think mainstream recovery works for many people. 12 step programs are excellent resources for people who are good fits for them. But we also need to have the narrative out there of what else there is online because there's so many programs and there's so many communities. And at the end of the day, someone who's struggling just really needs a space to feel seen, a space to feel heard. And so if folks like if educators can find those spaces, that can make a huge, huge difference. Yeah, I agree. And you were kind of alluding to the bigger the bigger issue, which is like the burnout in those professions and all of that support yeah. for yeah, that's a tough yeah. one. Because you know, I mean I know a lot of organizations, like many school districts will offer, like say as a part of like their EAP benefits, like a teacher can go to therapy, maybe like three, four, five sessions for free. But then after that, then they have to either find that resource on their own things like that. So I think that also having group resources are great. Therapy is great. I think it's really good whether you're doing therapy, whether you're doing coaching and working with a person one-on-one, it's great. But like one of the big things, like say, even with people who I coach one-on-one, I always encourage them to find a community because there's just something about the space where there's several people coming together with similar issues and similar experiences. That's just really, really empowering. And it helps a person feel seen and helps a person to not feel alone. When it's just you and your therapist or just you and a coach, you're still probably thinking in your head the backwards thought that I'm the only one who's possibly like having this conversation with this person in front of me, which is so not true. So I I really think community is so, so important. And I know that for teachers, they hesitate, say, to go to their local 12-step in-person meetings because they're scared of being seen by someone who might recognize them. And I'm like, fair enough. So let's look for your other options. Where else can you go? Maybe you need to go online. Yeah, I agree. Community and not feeling alone is so, so key. Yeah. So can you share your experience with alcoholic liver disease? Like how you got diagnosed, how you're doing now, that whole thing? Sure. So to in my last year of drinking, so I would say from 2018 to 2019, I started noticing some changes in my body 
where like my cheeks were getting swollen. Like I, I felt like a little, I don't know what that animal is that keeps stuff in its cheeks, but I felt like one of those animals. I'm thinking beaver, I don't know, whoever stores nuts in their cheeks for the winter, that's what I felt like. So my cheeks were like randomly swelling and then I was losing weight, which again is not like my, my body's natural set point is never to be a light thin person, but I was losing weight, but then I was getting like a solid actual belly and obviously not pregnant. Right. So I would notice those things. I, I started getting like nausea all the time, throwing up in the morning, throwing up bile. My appetite was next to nothing. Like I could barely eat and I had no appetite for food. I started, I would get like daily, like almost like feverish temperatures that wouldn't go away unless I drank alcohol. I had the weirdest cough that would only go away when I drank alcohol. I would get sick in the middle of the day and have to like run to the bathroom, throw up or diarrhea. You know, the shakes eventually became a thing to the point where if I wanted, I didn't want my students to see my hands shaking. So I would never like offer them anything. I would never, I couldn't even hold the way I'm holding this hand steady, it used to have to be a two hand thing. So I used to drink everything like this. If you're listening, I would hold two hands, you know, on a cup or a mug or a can to keep that can steady to keep the drink from spilling because my hands were shaking so much. I had stopped writing on the board and I would start having students write on the board for me and they would feel really special like, oh, I got a job. But they didn't know that it was because I didn't want to write because my handwriting had gotten so out of control. So those were essentially, I would say, the majority of the symptoms that I was feeling. And so I had a physical in August of 2019. And yeah, they they drew blood work and all my liver enzymes were all over the place. And they, you know, the doctor was like, you have to stop drinking. And like I said, I didn't until I didn't stop drinking until I had that whole like panic moment where I couldn't drive. And that made me stop or at, at least start attempting to stop. Once I had sustained sobriety, so complete abstinence from drinking, it resolved, I would say, probably within about six months. But, you know, if it was hard for it to resolve from the space of September 2019 to November of 2020 because I kept starting and stopping so much. So I never really gave my liver a break. But once I finally, like, stopped drinking and totally abstained, my liver is completely normal. Like, my liver function, thankfully, has gone back to normal. Um, all my labs are good. You know, I used to take high blood pressure medication. I don't take high blood pressure medication anymore. I took medication to assist me with the transition to sobriety, probably for about a year. And then after that, I worked with my psychiatrist to transition myself off. So I don't even take anything anymore. Like I take vitamins, but, you know, so also if, if you're listening and you're wondering about like, you know, do I take meds? Do I not take meds? You know, I want you to I want to invite you to the idea that nothing that you do has to be forever and that like you can always change your mind, right? If you're working with a professional, you too can make a plan that's going to work for you. The way I look at medication in my journey, it's like if you have a broken leg and you have a crutch and you have the cast, right? You don't keep that cast and you don't wear the crutches or use the crutches for the rest of your life. You just use them until your leg is strong enough for you to walk on your own again. And that's kind of how I feel medication was for me. Yeah, thank you for sharing about that. And and just it's just a reminder like you do heal, your liver heals. You know, you can get to a point where you develop um cirrhosis of the liver and that that is end stage liver disease. That one's not reversible, but for everything else related to your liver, I I call it the Groot 
<laughs> of your organs because it's it can regenerate, it can heal. It's it's amazing. So I'm I'm glad that you were able to reverse all of that. And and like you said, you took the meds when you needed it, not forever. And just it's different for everybody. So yeah. look into your options with your own provider. That's great. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you do now is you you teach classes about writing and you use writing to heal. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I, I am a lifelong educator. And one of the things that I do, so I work with the Reframe app and I teach like their book club. And I love teaching. Like I realize I don't care who I'm teaching. As long as we're having conversations and I'm seeing light bulbs light up in humans, it doesn't matter what age group, it's like it's phenomenal and it makes me so happy. And I, I love writing. And so what I did the same way that I used to teach my students how to write, I literally have that same outline in terms of like my writing for healing program, but obviously modified to write about the hard stories. And also now that I've had like so much training from the different support group communities that I work in, creating an environment where we can tell these really hard stories, but support each other and nurture one another. And so it is, it's just beautiful because I know what telling my story did for me. And that's, that's kind of like why I'm so passionate about it, because I know that when I opened my mouth, that saved my life. Right. And so I know 100% that for someone to get something off their chest and onto a journal, into a Google doc, a word document, it doesn't even have to be that they give it and publicize it. Like nobody has to like put it in the newspaper like I did. But I just know the act of uttering things that have never been spoken can be so powerfully healing um, that I love and has been an honor to have that opportunity with folks. So I'm actually starting the fourth round of this. So by the time people are listening to this, I'll be we'll be in the mix of starting the fourth round. Um, but I'll do it again in 2024 if anyone is interested. And I always started off with the free workshop so people can kind of see what the work looks like and feels like. So if it's like too much for them they don't need to opt in. But then, you know, there's always folks who are like, oh my gosh, like, yes, let's do this. And it's been, it's been a really powerful experience. Um, and I love it because I think that I come off as a safe person. And I think that my background in teaching, say students with disabilities, most of the students that I taught had a lot of emotional challenges and kind of had all the odds stacked against them. And I was able to get them to like, write. And so being able to now work with adults who can easily feel like life has throwing them every shitty hand and seeing them like finally like write their stories, even if it's just for their own eyes, is just a really, really beautiful experience. So it, it's like my, my little baby project, which I, I love doing it. Like I do the one-on-one -on -one coaching and I love that, but I do really love doing the classes. Cause again, it's just, it's the teacher in me. I love doing it. Oh, that's wonderful. Is it, is there a book in you that you're thinking about there, writing? There is, there is a book in me that I'm, started. And honestly, I need to get back into it. I've written two chapters. It is called shockingly from bottomless to sober. Bottomless to sober is like my thing, right? It's called from bottomless to sober. And then I've played around with like the, the subheading. I'm having a vocabulary brain fart right now, but I, I guess it's like, I'm, I've written the first two chapters and I love the first two chapters and I've kind of just been wondering where to go because initially I was writing it with the intention of trying to get it picked up by an agent, which I'm starting to find is very, very difficult. And I'm kind of like, well, maybe I just need to write it for me, which is what I tell the students all the time in my writing program, write it for you. And then the right people will want to read it anyway. So I'm thinking of like adjusting it. Like once we get into things slow down for me over the holiday season, I think I'm going to like dive in 
to really getting more of that out. Cause it's basically, it's kind of like, yeah, like me just telling my story, but in more detail, cause there's only so much I can ever say on like a 30 minute interview or even a 45, 50 minute interview, right? There's only so much that can come out, but to actually have the luxury to stop and write everything I feel like writing, it has been really soothing so far, the first two chapters. Yeah, well, I would read it. I know we have a lot of listeners that would read it too. So keep us posted. <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> well, what what are your top tips for someone who is looking to change their drinking? I would say top tips are be open to doing something you've never done before. I would say be open to examining what is being told to you and seeing if it fits right with your spirit or if it's something that just really doesn't sit right with you. And again, I'll say, for example, for some people, like one big conversation that I feel like happens a lot for folks will be, let's say, again, the medication conversation. Well, I, what I might hear someone say is, well, I don't feel like I'm sober if I'm using psych meds because those are mind altering substances too, right? And then it's this conversation of like, well, what do you define as sobriety as, right? Like, are you just attaching yourself to a social media version of what sobriety is? Or like, what is the life that you need to lead so that you are happy and healthy for you and your loved ones who are not on Instagram and not like on social media, right? And so one of my biggest conversations that I always have with anyone early on is yeah, like let's define like what does what does this journey mean for you, right? Like what if you're using a label, why, right? Choose your labels, but why, right? But really examining the why behind what, why you're doing it, how you're doing it. Because again, it it's sometimes nice to just follow what someone else says, but I think that things are way more meaningful when you have way more agency behind the work that you're doing. And if you read any of the neuroscience around addiction, that's typically one of the markers for success is when people feel agency in what they are doing in terms of their recovery journey. So I really want anybody who's listening to feel empowered in their journey. So if you are fully abstinent, good. I hope you feel like a badass. If you are moderating and you are on your way somewhere, I want you to feel like a badass too, because again, you're still making a really big decision about your relationship with alcohol. Same thing also like the whole conversation of, again, I practice abstinence, but I believe in harm reduction too. And so for people who do moderate, again, I work with the Reframe app and there's a whole community space in there of folks who do the cut back track, which means that they're drinking less, right? And I want to recognize that that is really powerful too, right? To actively reduce the harm that you are doing to yourself on a daily basis is a really, really big deal. And a lot of people aren't able to do that. So I think it's really important for people to really connect with themselves and make sure that they're feeling genuine about the decisions that they're making and not doing it to please somebody, to fit in with the norm. I would, I feel like that's like my biggest thing, really. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, like you said, like just applaud people for making a change and just being willing to cut back. I mean, that should be applauded. And if abstinence is your goal, then that, you know, there's many different ways to get there. And Speaking of reframe, I had Kevin on the podcast and he gave this great analogy that has just stuck with me because he said like everyone has a specific like combination of what will work for them. 
this relates to you being a teacher, like your old lockers at school where you have a specific combination that will unlock the key for you. And for some, that might be medication, that might be AA, that might be reframe, that might be a coach or a therapist or whatever. So just being willing and open to try these different things for what works for you, not what it's supposed to look like, you know, not what society expects it to be, but what works for you. Yeah. The other thing I would say, actually, and this is something I practice, I say on social media, if any account makes you feel bad about yourself, especially early on, mute it or unfollow it, right? Like if it's an actual friend that you know, and you just need to mute it to like avoid drama, fine, right? That's the beauty that we can mute people now. We don't have to like cut ties, but be very careful with your social media consumption because it's very easy to feel less than just like that, just from like looking at the wrong account, spiraling, doom scrolling, et cetera. Especially like I've noticed that it used to come up for me earlier on when I would see people with like big milestones and me feeling like, man, I could barely put in a week. And then Mm -hmm. I'm seeing people with huge milestones or yes, like if certain people are proudly touting like their specific recovery journey, their specific path, and your path doesn't fit in with that, suddenly like that self-doubt creeping in. So I would say until you start to feel a little bit stronger, be very wary of what you follow on social media. You don't have to follow everyone. You don't have to follow everyone just because they're sober. You don't have to do anything. So I feel like that's also really important. Yeah. I mean, that's just good life advice too. Yeah. Whether you're in the sober world or not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anything else you want to share that we haven't talked about yet today? No, I mean, I feel like we covered everything. Yeah, just I hope you all reach out. You can follow me on Instagram. Instagram is my first and last name, Jessica Duenas24. My birthday is February 4th. So that's my Instagram. And then my website always has different, you know, you can join my email list on my website at bottomlessdisober.com. And that's nice because, again, like I have an email list. I have my free writing workshop. On occasion, I do other things that might be pop-up events. So you can just always be on top of anything that might be you might be interested in. Oh, and I have a podcast, which I always forget about it because for me, that's really just like a little outlet for myself. So I don't like, I don't know how to explain the podcast. I just feel like I like it because I just get to like say whatever I feel like and stop recording and then call it a day. So, but I do have a podcast if anyone cares to listen to my random thoughts. And it's also the name titled Bottomless to Sober. Great. I will put all those links in our show notes so that you can connect with Jessica. And I just want to thank you again for sharing your story and just recovering out loud and being so vocal and so helpful. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Deb. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point podcast. Please share and review the show so you can help other people too. I want you to know I'm always here for you. So please reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com for free resources and help. No matter where you are on your drinking journey, I want to encourage you to just keep practicing, keep going. I promise you are not alone and you are worth it. Every day you practice not drinking is a day you can learn from. I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, talk to you next time.